It's kind of fun to be here. Um, I'm on sabbatical all year. And I've had sabbaticals in the past, but more typically, sabbaticals last one semester. But when I found out a whole year was an option, I took it. I call it my radical sabbatical. <laughs> and at this point in the year, after a semester and a half of not teaching, it feels more like being in academic exile. You know, I miss you guys so bad. <laughs> Can't wait to get back here in the fall. Um, but in the meantime, for my radical sabbatical, I scheduled uh, a number of pilgrimages. And so, just in the last four months, we've been to the Holy Land for 10 days, to Guadalupe for the first time ever, and then to uh, Italy. And we were in Rome for five days, and then Siena and Lanciano and San Giovanni Rotondo, and of course, Assisi. And then next month, we're just saddled with a trip to Fatima and Lourdes and Avila. And so that will complete the sabbatical year. But uh, punctuating it now is this opportunity to share with you. And I want to thank Catherine, as well as the Warriors of the Word, for this opportunity to, to share, especially at this auspicious moment here at the very beginning of Holy Week. Before we open the word of prayer, I would like to draw from some passages in sacred scripture. Catherine already alluded to this text that is so important to their household for this year. And I want to just reread that and give you an opportunity to hear it again. For we have this treasure in earthen vessels to show that the transcendent power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but never destroyed, always carrying in our bodies the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For while we live, we are always being given up to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Now, if we had more time to look at the context, we would see that the idea of earthen vessels is actually taken from a term that was employed in the temple liturgy for what was used to pour out the libation offerings of wine. These vessels often also poured out the blood of the animal sacrifices. That's how Paul wants, to, wants us to see our bodies as what God will use for us to pour out our life like Christ poured out his lifeblood for us. The other passage I'd like to read from the Corinthian correspondence is taken from 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and I draw the title of the presentation from chapter 5, verse 7. For Christ, our Paschal Lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed. And this is the week, of course, where we commemorate that sacrifice. And so let's begin together in a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Almighty God, our Father in heaven, we thank you for the gift of Jesus Christ, your eternal Son, our Savior, our Lord, our King, and our Lamb. We thank you also for the opportunity that we have to ponder the wisdom that you have revealed to us in the inspired word of sacred scripture. And so in the name of Jesus, the incarnate word, we ask for the Holy Spirit to illuminate our minds with the light of truth and to open up our hearts to the fire of your love 
so that the inspired word of sacred scripture might come alive in our thoughts, in our words, and in our deeds. Help us then and hear us as we pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. And give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, when I got the invitation to share this particular evening, it's not just the night before taxes are due, which I hope you remain at least temporarily oblivious to in your undergraduate status, but it is really this great and profound time that we call Holy Week. And for me, timing is everything. To be able to share at the very beginning of Holy Week is special. I'm reminded of how timing is everything. Uh, Catherine mentioned that we do have six kids and our three oldest are now having kids themselves and that's why our, our, our tenth grandchild we just found out five days ago was due uh, in this, uh, this year. It's kind of exciting. But I was reminded of uh, our second son, Gabriel, who happened to be born on our fifth anniversary, August 18th. It was the greatest anniversary gift we could ever give to each other. But the interesting thing is when we celebrated our tenth anniversary, we came down that morning to a really loud argument between our oldest son, Michael, and Gabriel, who was getting ready to celebrate his fifth birthday that same day. And when I tried to figure out what the argument was about, it just seemed downright confusing until Michael, who was seven at that time and who had a great sense of neighborhood pride, he said, you gotta stop him, Dad, you gotta stop him. And I'm like, why, what's he doing? He said, he's going around the neighborhood telling everybody that he was born on the same day you and Mom got married. And he looked at me, Gabriel did, with this special pleading, well, I was, wasn't I? And I'm like, no, not the same day, but the same date. Well, to a five-year-old, what difference does that make, you know? <laughs> but for my bride, his mom, it meant all the difference in the world. And so, for the sake of the neighborhood and my wife's reputation, we got that distinction straight. Well, timing is everything, and especially for us as Catholic Christians, because we don't stand in the seats as spectators looking on at salvation history as something over and done in the past. We are standing in the middle of the stream of salvation history, like the river of life that flows from the throne of the Lamb, as John shows us in his visions of the apocalypse. And so the meaning of history really comes down to what we know happened in 33 years, that is Jesus life. And then, of course, the purpose of his incarnation and life on earth comes down to the three years of his public ministry. And then the goal of his public ministry can be reduced to what really came down to three days that we're preparing to celebrate. We call it the Triduum, the Paschal Triduum. And the climax of that Paschal mystery comes down to three hours during which he hung on the cross. And you could say that the significance of what Jesus endured on the cross comes down to three words. It is finished. Because what he completed at that moment 
was the salvation of the world. And it really is what showed us that he wasn't losing his life due to Roman violence there on the cross. He was giving his life on account of divine mercy. And so what is finished is there described as the hinge of all history. The point at which salvation history turns from the old covenant which was broken until now at last the new covenant came because that's exactly what Jesus inaugurated through his fulfillment of the old. And then of course we also know that the proof of this salvation is what exactly happened on the third day when he was raised from the dead. And so as we begin Holy Week and as we approach the Triduum and we think about what happened then on Holy Thursday and Good Friday and Easter Sunday, I want to propose to you that once again, timing is everything. I'm reminded of a conversation that I had just about three or four years ago with a buddy of mine that I knew from high school. Chris and I had graduated together way, way back in 1975 in the South Hills of Pittsburgh at St. Clair High School. And he had been a cradle Catholic and I had been an evangelical Protestant. And I don't want to go into all of the details of this exchange, but we ran into each other after many years at the Pittsburgh airport. And he actually noticed me because I had been paged for a, a seating change. And so when I got back, he said, Scott? And I'm like, yes. And he said, Scott Hahn? And I'm thinking, he must watch EWTN or something like that, you know? I'm like, yeah. And he said, you don't recognize me? And I'm thinking, well, TV doesn't work that way. You know, it's it's one-way visualization. It's not two. And then he suddenly said, you know, we graduated from St. Clair High School together back in 75, and that's when the lights came on, and I recognized Chris right away. And we, we hugged, and we just exchanged greetings, and then he couldn't wait. He said, I have been looking forward to this day for years. And I'm thinking, well, we were friends, but we weren't that tight, you know? And I didn't say anything, he said, but I, I, he said, I've been looking forward to this day for years because remember, way back in high school, I used to be a Catholic. Remember that? You know, I want you to know that I am now an evangelical Bible Christian. And he thought I would be overjoyed. And I was underjoyed. And so I said, well, I've got news for you, Chris, because I'm now an evangelical Bible Catholic Christian. You know, which in his ears made about as much sense as being a married bachelor. You know, what? an evangelical Bible Catholic Christian, and he screwed up his face and got all contorted. He's like, no way, not you, not you. What happened, you know? And so we didn't have enough time to really get into it. And I gave him my card, he gave me his. And, and we talked later, about a week later on the phone, and uh, he couldn't wait to remind me of how I used to kind of go after him and his, uh, his friends, my friends in the, in the high school cafeteria, and ask him all kinds of questions about the Bible and Jesus and all of that. And, and he couldn't wait to turn the cafeteria tables around on me. And when we got back together on the phone a week later, he said, uh, you remember when you used to ask me and my friends, where in the New Testament do you find the sacrifice of the mass? Remember that? And I said, no, but it sounds like what I would have done. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> he said, oh yeah, more than once, believe me. And you would always go on to point out that the sacrifice of the mass was not a sacrifice, but a meal. That the sacrifice was Calvary and that the Mass or the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper, I think is what you called it back then, the Lord's Supper is just a meal. And he said, that's what I believe now. So let me ask you, where in the New Testament do you find the sacrifice of the Mass? And I'm thinking, Chris, make my day. <laughs> this is what I live for. <laughs> 
But we were on the phone, so he couldn't see my eager expression, you know, like a predatory beast of prey. So I said, well, let's begin at the very start, and that is to recognize that we stand together, that we share common ground, that what we agree on is far greater than where we disagree. He's like, huh? And I'm like, well, you know, the fact is, as a Catholic, I do believe that Calvary is the sacrifice. And you could hear him sigh some relief. Oh, whew, I thought you were really a Catholic, you know? I'm like, well, no, Chris, I am, and Catholics really believe that. He said, well, to be honest, when I was raised a Catholic back in high school in the early 70s, we weren't really sure what we were supposed to believe. We weren't taught all that well. And I understood, and I kind of felt bad for him. But I said, the fact is, you know, Calvary is the sacrifice for all Christians. And there is a profound sense in which we would say that the Eucharist, or the Mass, is a meal, a banquet. But at the same time, Chris, I think it's important for us to recognize that we couldn't come to share this common core of beliefs without further insight. Because as a matter of historical fact, you know, what I learned from the early church fathers is a, you know, is a plain and simple truth. And that is, if we had been there at Calvary on Good Friday and had witnessed the crucifixion of Jesus as his devout followers who were all Jews, not one of us would have been able to go home that evening and recount our experience as witnessing a sacrifice. And he's like, what? I said, yeah, because for Jews, remember, a sacrifice is what took place inside Jerusalem, inside the Holy Temple, on top of an altar with the Levites standing there to preside at the sacrifice, whereas Jesus was crucified where? Outside the walls, far from the temple, where there were no altars with Levites standing by to offer a sacrifice. What we would have gone home and described to our family members and friends would have not been a sacrifice. It would have been a Roman execution and a rather brutal one at that. So the question that we have to answer is this. How in the world did a Roman execution get turned into a holy sacrifice that all Christians affirm? And not only a holy sacrifice, but the holiest one of all times that ended up retiring all the animal offerings in the temple. And I allowed this long pause for dramatic effect. <laughs> like, I'm not sure. I never heard it put that way before. I said, well, you know, I hadn't either until I really went more and more deep, you know, into this, this mystery of salvation. And I said, uh, what the early church fathers showed me is what St. Paul had shown them, and that is what he affirms in his letter to Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7, Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast. And I said, the only way you can really understand what happened to Jesus on Good Friday then, through the eyes of St. Paul, is by looking at it in the light of what Jesus was doing with the 12 disciples in the upper room on Holy Thursday. Because what was that? He was celebrating the Passover. But he wasn't just celebrating the Passover of the Old Covenant, Chris. He was celebrating the Passover of the Old Covenant in order to fulfill it as the Lamb of God. And he didn't fulfill it by doing away with it or retiring it. He fulfilled it by transforming the Old Covenant Passover into the Passover of the New Covenant. And I said, what was the Passover in the Old Covenant? Was it a, a meal or was it a sacrifice? And I said, the answer is obviously both, A and B. It was a sacrifice first and foremost, and then secondarily, it was also a meal. But it was a sacrifice primarily. Just ask any lamb, he'll tell you. And what was true in the Old Covenant didn't cease to be true. And if anything, it became more true when it was fulfilled by Jesus who established the New. 
And so if Jesus is celebrating the Passover of the Old Covenant by fulfilling it and transforming it into the Passover of the New Covenant, we've got to listen carefully and watch closely so that we understand what he was saying and doing because it wasn't just the same old, same old. I mean, at one point, near the beginning, everything would have been routine. Those 12 disciples who all grew up devout Jews would have recognized each and every little aspect of what they were doing with Jesus. Until near the beginning of the Paschal celebration, Jesus took the, the matzah, the unleavened bread, and what does he say? Take and eat, this is my body which will be given up for you. At which point the disciples probably wondered, what was that? You know, it, it, he suddenly just kind of broke from the rubrics, you know, and it's not something that you just simply do. You don't improvise when you're celebrating the highest and the holiest Jewish festival of the Passover. But he was right back on track a moment later, and so apparently none of the disciples interrupted him, Chris, and you know, nobody asked him, what was that? Why'd you say that? What was that rhetoric, that, that insertion there? You know, and they were back towards, you know, the liturgy as they all knew it until near the end of the meal, when he took a chalice, the third cup, the cup of blessing, which every devout Jew would recognize, and he said, what? This is the chalice of my blood, the blood of the new covenant, the blood of the new testament, as we read in Luke 22:20. 20. The Greek is kinadiatheke, you can translate that either new testament or new covenant, I explained to my friend. So here is Jesus saying, this is the cup of the blood, my blood, the blood of the new covenant, the, the new testament poured out for you and for many, for the forgiveness of sins, do this in memory of me. And there he goes again. What was that ritual improvisation? And here again, nobody interrupted and asked him. And a few moments later, they were leaving the upper room, going over to the Mount of Olives, into the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus fell down on his face and prayed three times, Abba, take this cup from me. But those disciples must have been wondering, what, what did he do? Why did he say what he said and do what he did? And it probably wasn't clear to them, Chris, but it became clear after his death the next day and after his resurrection on the third day and after the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out upon them because suddenly looking back, inspired by the Holy Spirit and illuminated by divine revelation, they would have recognized that that was not just rhetoric. Take and eat, this is my body. It wasn't just ritual. This is the cup of my blood, the blood of the New Testament poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. There was a reality behind the rhetoric, behind the ritual. It was a mystery to be sure, but the fact is, he said what he meant, he meant what he said, and he was fulfilling the Passover as the lamb. And as such, he was giving himself. He was offering them his body. So I said the point that they came to discover later on with the help of the Holy Spirit was that he didn't lose his life on Good Friday if he'd already freely given it as an expression of love on Holy Thursday. He was the victim of divine love and mercy, not Roman violence and injustice. And I said, the fact is, the Eucharist that he instituted in the context of celebrating the Passover of the Old Covenant is precisely what Paul's referring to as the Passover of the New Covenant. And if it's just a meal, then it's not a Passover. But if it is the Passover of the New Covenant, it can't be just a meal. It had to be his own sacrifice. I said, moreover, if the Eucharist that he instituted is just a meal, then Chris, Calvary is just an execution. 
and nothing more. But if, in fact, the Eucharist is the Passover that Jesus initiates, then Calvary is where that sacrifice is what he consummates. And so, in transforming bread and wine into his own body and blood, and freely laying down his life as a gift of love, instituting the Eucharist is what transformed that execution into the consummation of his sacrifice. And I went on for like 15 minutes, and he's like, wait, stop. What did you just say a minute ago? Like, I have many things. No, if, if, if the Eucharist is just a meal, then what? Then Calvary is just an execution. But I said, Chris, if the Eucharist is what Paul is speaking of, Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast. And in the next several chapters, what feast does he go on to recount? The Eucharist is what he describes more fully in the subsequent chapters in 1 Corinthians than all of his other letters put together. So if the Eucharist is just a meal, Calvary is just an execution, but if the Eucharist is the Passover, the new covenant, then it had to be the point at which the sacrifice was initiated. And then the Calvary is the point at which that sacrifice is consummated. Holy Thursday is what transformed Good Friday from a tragedy into the wellspring of salvation for the whole human race. Holy Thursday is what transformed Friday into Good Friday because he was laying down his life. And if Holy Thursday and the Eucharist is what transformed Calvary on Good Friday into a sacrifice, Chris, then I would add that Easter Sunday is what transformed that sacrifice into a sacrament which we now do in memory of him precisely because the Eucharist is not his body bleeding on the cross, it's not his body buried in the tomb. The Eucharistic body of Christ, his body, blood, soul, and divinity is the resurrected, ascended Lord of Lords and King of Kings who still is described by St. John in Revelation 5.5 as the Lamb now standing as though he had been slain. He had been slain, but now he stands, both as the high priest in the heavenly Jerusalem, but also as the paschal victim offered by the high priest. All of the spokes of the old covenant converge upon the hub of Christ who gives us the new covenant. And we went on like this rather lopsidedly for about an hour or so. He could barely get a word in edgewise. But I mean, he turned on the faucet, or at least he asked me to. So by the end of that hour, we got back to that question. So where in the New Testament do you find the sacrifice of the Mass? I said, listen carefully once again to the words of institution that you find in Luke 22, verses 18 through 20, because this is what really answers the question. Jesus says, this is the cup of my blood, the blood of the New Covenant, the blood of the New Testament, poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. And then what did he add? Do this in memory of me. Do this. What is this? This is the Eucharist. And the Eucharist is the New Covenant. The Eucharist is the New Testament. In fact, the only time in all four Gospels Jesus ever used the word covenant or testament or new covenant or new testament is precisely here. What is arguably the most theologically profound word in the whole Hebrew vocabulary, Jesus saved the best to last because he only employs that term on this occasion when he says, this is the cup of my blood, the blood of the New Testament, the blood of the New Covenant. And he says, do this in memory of me. This is the Eucharist. The Eucharist is the New Testament. 
I said, Chris, listen carefully because what you'll discover is what I found in the fathers and they found in St. Paul that the New Testament was a sacrament long before it ever started to become a document, according to the document. Because there in Luke 22, Jesus doesn't say, this is the cup of my blood, the blood of the New Testament. Write this in memory of me. What did he say? Read this in memory of me. No, no, he didn't say that either. What did he say? Do this. And what is this? The Eucharist. And what is the Eucharist? The only thing Jesus ever called the New Testament, and he called it, he called the New Testament the Eucharist, and the Eucharist is the Passover of the New Covenant. Where in the New Testament do you find the sacrifice of the Mass? Chris, the short answer is this. The sacrifice of the Mass is the New Testament. It's the only thing Jesus ever called the New Testament. And as a matter of historical fact, you know, most of the 12, over half of them sitting around the table in the upper room, never ended up contributing a single book to the 27 books that we now call the New Testament, but not because they were disobeying orders, but because Jesus didn't command them to write this in memory. He commanded them to do this. And that's what they went out doing, proclaiming the gospel, baptizing new converts. And in the breaking of the Eucharistic bread, they were doing this, the Eucharist, the Passover, the new covenant, in memory of him. And I said, so where in the New Testament do you find the sacrifice of the Mass? The, the sacrifice of the Mass is the New Testament. This is what made it so hard for me because all I wanted to do was to be a New Testament Christian, but never in my wildest dreams did I imagine that would require me to become a Eucharistic Catholic. But that's what happened. He's like, whoa. You could tell he was like, sorry I asked. <laughs> so we hung up and about a week later we were back on the phone again. And we were talking about things, you know, and uh, he said, okay, so go back to that. You know, Holy Thursday is what transformed Good Friday. How, what, where, you know? And I said, yeah, it, it's what transformed the execution into a sacrifice, which we now all believe in. We all now recognize as a sacrifice, as Christians, whether we're Catholic, Protestant, Independent, Fundamentalist, Pentecostal, Charismatic, whatever we are, we all know that to be true, but the only way it could be true is if the Eucharist was more than a meal. If the Eucharist was a Passover, it had to be a sacrifice, and the meal aspect is the sacrificial banquet. I mean, if it's just a meal, as uh, uh, Cardinal Wright was the Bishop of Pittsburgh when I grew up in the city not far from us, and he was a corpulent prelate weighing in a little bit more than 300 pounds, and when he heard that some people were calling the Eucharist a meal, he roared, a meal? It's not even a snack! <laughs> And it's true, if you're going to reduce the Eucharist to a meal, you've got to admit it's barely a snack. But if it is the Passover of the New Covenant, it's the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's a sacrificial banquet. It is a meal on earth that takes us to heaven, where we can enjoy a meal like no other, a banquet that no king has ever imagined, much less celebrated. So in that second conversation, we went back over all of this, and it was really significant because it set into motion, you know, a series of conversations that took place over the course, so I'd say, of a year or two. And then, much to my delight and to my surprise, he called me one day, rather out of the blue, to let me know that uh, he had just finished the Lamb's Supper with his wife, Carol, and they had read Lord Have Mercy, my book on the healing power of confession. And they were calling me while driving back from the local Catholic parish because they had gone to confession for the first time in over 30 years. 
And they were in a good mood, which was sort of surprising, you know, if you've got 30 years to confess. And Chris said, well, what we're in a good mood about is the fact that tomorrow we're going to receive the Holy Eucharist. We're going to participate in the sacrifice of the Mass. We're going to get to celebrate this marriage supper of the Lamb. And we talked right after that, and they are still overjoyed to this day, now two years later. But I think this is the key for us to unlock the door that leads us into Holy Week and leads us through the Triduum and shows us that the Paschal Mystery really is the hinge on which all of history turns from the old to the new, from earth to heaven, from the visible and the human to the invisible and the divine, because this is what Jesus came to do. And it's helpful for us, I think, as Catholic Christians to recognize how profoundly rooted in sacred scripture our belief is. And not only our belief and our practice, but also the vision of what it is that saves us. Because, you know, the fact is, we all recognize the cross as the pivotal event. But there are two entirely different explanations that are given for why it is that the cross saves us. The standard non-Catholic explanation goes like this, that because we sinned, Jesus suffered. Because we were guilty and he was innocent, he got punished for our guilt and we were acquitted and rewarded for his righteousness. And so on the cross, there was something of a legal exchange whereby he gets our guilt and unrighteousness imputed to him so that he is then punished in our stead, whereas we get his righteousness imputed to us and so therefore, we are pardoned, we are forgiven, we are acquitted, we are justified, we are rewarded, we are given his righteousness. And we've heard it so many times, we might scratch our heads and wonder, okay, what's wrong with that? Well, what's wrong with that? When you listen to people expound it even more deeply, you realize that the explanation has a whole series of truths, but they're sort of like out of order. I was just reading Irenaeus earlier this morning, and he was already dealing with some errors back in the second century. And the Gnostics were quoting the same scriptures that all of the fathers of the church loved to quote. But he said it's sort of like taking a mosaic where the image is a king and just breaking it up so that you have all of the little pieces and then you rearrange them in terms of a dog or a fox. And you say, see, this is what scripture proves. And you're using all of the same little pieces of tile but the end result is different because what you're showing is a series of truths that are half the truth. Half truths are always the source of confusion and misunderstanding and error, or what the church calls heresy back in the second century as well as our own. I mean, the, the, the fact that they go on to expound this explanation by saying that when God the Father was looking down at Calvary and his son on the cross from heaven, he could no longer see his son. He could only see our sin. And so what did he do? He poured out his wrath. You know, he sort of vented his anger, which of course is holy and righteous, but it was directed against this innocent victim because he was willing to suffer in our place. And again, we've heard it so much, we kind of scratch our heads and wonder, okay, okay, so it doesn't really make a lot of sense, but isn't that what we also believe as Catholic Christians? No, it's not. The idea that God the Father looks down from heaven and can no longer see his son. You know, what kind of divine schizophrenia or blindness are we looking at here? The sacred humanity of Jesus, that Jesus took for our sake. He took what is ours to give us what is his. 
He did it out of loving obedience to the Father. So when the Father looked down upon the sacred humanity of Jesus on earth, it was beautiful to behold. It was unhateable. It was absolutely lovable, but never as much as when the loving obedience of the Son took that sacred humanity all the way to the garden and then to the cross and allowed it to be fastened in a torturous and agonizing way to the cross. When the Father looked down upon the sacred humanity of his Son, he saw his beloved Son bearing sin, to be sure, but seeing the love and the obedience that bore the suffering in an act of love. Jesus wasn't turned into a lightning rod or a whipping boy or into some kind of surrogate so that God the Father just kind of bashed him instead of us, got it out of his system so that we could be set free. Seldom has it ever put that crassly, but at the end of the day, that's what it comes down to. That God punishes our injustice by condemning an innocent man, but only because he was willing. That's punishing one injustice, but compounding it with another. You can't punish an innocent man with a sentence of death just because he's willing. Think about it in a courtroom. You know, you've got a, a series of people who are guilty of some heinous crimes, and, and they're, they're going to be sentenced. And it's going to be a severe sentence. Might even be capital punishment. And if the judge sees someone walk in the back and say, hey, look, you know, I'll be punished in their place. Let me be executed instead. What would you think of that judge if he said, well, all right, yeah, we'll take that innocent man because he's willing and we'll torture and execute him instead of those who are guilty and then we'll impute his righteousness and innocence to them and let them go free. Hello, what's wrong with this picture? It's not a king. It's a dog. It's a fox. It's a series of truths that add up to a half-truth. The fact is, what we've got to see is that Jesus saved us not because of how much he suffered. As important as suffering is, it isn't as though he just simply bore the brunt of his father's rage and wrath for hours until finally it was all vented. You guys have no idea what I just went through for you, you know. Boy, you, he wakes up on the wrong side of the bed, you know, and you got to deal with this. No way. I mean, that's injustice, that's schizophrenia, that is worse. And just parenthetically, one of my dearest friends is one of my colleagues here. You can ask Dr. Bergsma what it was like for him as a Protestant pastor in Grand Rapids to really ponder and contemplate the mystery of salvation explained in those terms because it actually plunged him into a prolonged depression. Because he was afraid that he could no longer relate to God safely as a father. Because if that's how you treat your son, what are you going to do to me? And that is exactly how God leveraged the grace of conversion by showing him that the inner logic of the gospel is love. And that it's not how much Jesus suffered on the cross that saves us, it's rather how much he loves. And in the process of discovering the catechism and the scripture in St. Thomas Aquinas, Dr. Bergsman, like me, ended up doing the last thing on earth we ever expected to do, and that is become Catholic. But what a difference it makes when you look at it this way. 
Why? Because we know from experience that suffering by itself is not redemptive. Suffering by itself is unendurable. It's horrible. Suffering by itself doesn't accomplish any good. On the other hand, love all by itself can end up being nothing more than warm, fuzzy feelings and sentimentality. What is it that proves the genuineness of love? Greater love hath no man than this, than to what? Lay down his life for his beloved. So what proves whether or not love is genuine? Whether that love is willing to suffer for the beloved? And so it is. I want to read to you a section from one of my all-time favorite books written by one of my all-time favorite theologians. St. Thomas Aquinas in the Summa Theologica, the Tertia Pars, question 46. Get this. Because again, I want to say, and then I want to explain, that it's not how much he suffered that saves us. It's how much he loves. But it's the love that transforms the suffering into what we call sacrifice. St. Thomas is the one who opened the eyes of my heart to this mystery. And others, too. That the Eucharist that he instituted on Holy Thursday is what the early church fathers loved to call the sacramentum caritatis. The sacrament of charity. The sacrament of love. And it is the Eucharist on Holy Thursday that transformed the execution and all of that agony and suffering on Good Friday from being more than an execution into being the consummation of the Paschal sacrifice that he initiated when he instituted the Eucharist. Love in the Eucharist is what transformed the suffering of the cross into more than an execution, into a true sacrifice. This is what St. Thomas says. By suffering out of love and filial obedience as the Son, Christ gave more to God than was, was required to compensate for all of the sins of the human race. In other words, what Christ offered to God in his own sacred humanity and because of his own divine dignity as God's beloved son, God received more back from his son than what our sins took away from him. Why? First, because of the exceeding charity by which he suffered. Notice, charity is what endows that suffering with redemptive power. Secondly, because of the dignity of his life which he laid down in atonement, for it was a divine life. He was God and man. Thirdly, because of the extent of the passion and the greatness of the grief he endured. Remember that the physical pain was only one side of the equation. The suffering of his soul was the other side. And from your own experience, what is greater? Physical pain or the pain of the soul? The suffering that comes when your friends betray you, when you are slandered, when you are abandoned, when you are misrepresented like Jesus was. The pain of the soul is immeasurably greater than the pain of the body, especially when it comes to denial and betrayal and abandonment. And so Jesus suffered more because he loved. Recognize what Aquinas is saying. Love does not diminish Jesus' capacity to suffer. When you love somebody, you're not only willing to suffer for them, you're actually capable of suffering more. Love doesn't diminish our capacity to suffer, it enlarges it. It also transforms that suffering into an expression of love. Thus, Christ's passion was not only sufficient, but superabundant atonement for our sins. Indeed, 
Aquinas concludes, Christ's love was so much greater than his slayer's malice that the value of his passion in atoning for sin surpassed the murderous guilt of his crucifiers, such that Christ's suffering is sufficient and superabundant atonement even for the sin of his slayers. While they're pouring out their hatred and contempt, he is pouring out a love that is divine. And all the while, they're sinning in the most grievous way imaginable. He is loving in a way that was simply unimaginable before God became man. When he took what is ours to give us what is his, he assumed our humanity in order to impart his divinity. And where does that great exchange take place? In the incarnation at Christmas, but most especially it's what we celebrate in the Triduum. Because by instituting the Eucharist, this is my body, what do we have in the Eucharist? Christ's body, blood, and soul, right? Oh, but wait, there's something else. His body, blood, soul, and his divinity? Yeah. His body, blood, and soul, that's what constitutes his humanity, which he took from us. He took it from us to give us what is his, and that is divinity. And so in the Eucharist, he gives us the sacrament of love. And he celebrates the Eucharist and gives us his body before he ever carried his cross, before he ever conveyed one to us. Because the fact of the matter is this. Christ doesn't simply bear a cross for us. He bestows a cross upon us. And why? Because he imparts his love to us. So that we can now love in a way that goes beyond the merely human. We can love in a way that corresponds to, the, to divine sonship. We can love like Christ did. In the old covenant, the law was what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. But the new covenant brings a new commandment. And what is the new commandment that I give unto you? That you love one another as I have loved you. Well, why didn't you say so in the first place? Because you couldn't do it in the first place. In the old covenant, before Christ had assumed our humanity, that would have been an impossible command. But once he took what is ours to give us what is his, which is what we receive in every Holy Eucharist, then suddenly we can not only carry our crosses, but we can learn the inner logic of suffering is love. That it isn't God still needing to kind of work a little bit of more wrath out of his system. Victim souls. No. Victim souls hate suffering. They're not masochists. This is not like the subject matter of abnormal psychology. I was just in San Giovanni Rotundo a month ago. I mean, I had read all about Padre Pio, but I wasn't ready for actually encountering that man. St. Pio of Pietro Cialina. I mean, his body was out, you know, and I was alone with him. And we kind of formed a, a best lifelong friendship. I mean, this, I mean, Francis of Assisi, up until now, like one of my all-time favorite saints, it isn't like he's been replaced, but tied for first, you know, he had the stigmata for two years. Padre Pio for 50, from 1918 until he died in 1968. 50 years, bleeding and suffering and dying. And never was it just pleasant, pleasure. It was always pain. 
The only thing he would have hated more than the stigmata is if God had withdrawn them. Because the victim's souls learn that the truth of redemption is based not on how much Jesus suffered, but how much he loved. That the inner logic of love is suffering. And that the result is that you transubstantiate suffering into sacrifice. And Jesus would tell us what he taught Padre Pio, that transubstantiating bread and wine is small potatoes compared to transubstantiating sinners into saints. The one miracle is performed for the much greater one to resolve. And so what we look at is not some sort of substitution. It's a representation. It's a participation. As I said, he doesn't just bear a cross for us. He bestows a cross on us. And why? Well, I mean, we know apart from the Bible, no pain, no gain. I think Nautilus taught us that. We also learned that no cross, no crown. But why? Because the crown of life is the result of a love that is not merely human or concocted by our own power. The crown of life is given when the truth of love is revealed through redemptive suffering. Redemptive suffering is, by the way, arguably the single weirdest truth of the Catholic faith for us as Protestants or for non-Catholics. You know, when I first heard on the road to Rome, I was still at least three years from becoming a Catholic, and suddenly I felt like I had come not just to a detour, but to a cliff. When I heard a Catholic parent say to her kid, oh, just offer it up. And I made the mistake of saying, what does that mean? <laughs> and when she explained it, it just seemed to me that they were clearly implying that Jesus must not have suffered enough. You know, three hours was a good start, but it ended a little too soon, so we've got to kind of make up for what is lacking. And then she showed me Colossians 1.24 and how Paul rejoices in what he suffers for the sake of his body because he makes up for what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ for the sake of his body, that is the church. And Paul is not implying that Jesus didn't just suffer long enough and so we gotta kinda complete the deal. The point is that what happened to the head of the body must happen to all of the members of the body. That what Christ did as the head of the body is to love to the end by making his life a gift, by pouring it out, and by transforming suffering into sacrifice. Pain became passion, and the passion of our redemption. And not just for us, but now in us and through us for others. Paul rejoices, not because he's a sicko masochist. Paul rejoices because he gets to love like Christ loves, to suffer as Christ suffers. And he wants the Colossians and all of us to recognize that as well. And so it is that Jesus instituted the Eucharist as the sacrament of charity to transform an execution into the consummation of a sacrifice, but to transform that suffering into sacrifice, that pain into passion. And not just by himself, but with the Blessed Virgin, who is there at the foot of the cross, as the new Eve witnessing the new covenant brought about by the new Adam, who had failed, the first Adam had failed in the garden. The new Adam succeeded in Gethsemane. The first Adam failed at the tree by partaking of the forbidden fruit. The new Adam succeeds at the tree of life by giving us the fruit of the tree of life, which is what the early church fathers called the Eucharist. And so it is that she was there giving consent. I mean, don't think for a moment 
that she's down at the foot of the cross thinking, you know, Jesus, you and I both know who you are, what you are, what you could do. How can you put your mother through this? You're divine. Stop this now. You know, I mean, mothers, apart from Our Lady, might have been tempted to do unto them as they've been doing unto you. But that's not all she was doing. She wasn't simply giving silent consent to the self-offering of her beloved son, who she knew by faith to be divine. She wasn't just giving consent to become the spiritual mother of the beloved disciple when she heard him say, behold your son, and then behold your mother. She was giving consent to becoming the mother in the order of grace of all of us and all of them. How hard it would be for us to imagine. Ladies, I can't even begin to imagine how you could give consent like Our Lady did to that kind of torture and death for her son. But what was she really giving consent to? Becoming the mother of God's children. Becoming the mother of her son's torturers. She was giving consent to the redemptive sacrifice of her son whose suffering out of love produced a sacrifice that was not simply sufficient, but superabundant atonement. By giving back to God far more than our sins had taken away, his atoning sacrifice was not simply sufficient, but superabundant, not just for us, but even for the mal of his, of his slayers. And after all, who are we but his slayers? Because what are our sins but additional malice heaped up upon the agony that he goes through. Let me say it again. It is not primarily how much Jesus suffers that saves us, but how much he loves as the Son of God made man. However, far from diminishing the value of suffering, Christ's love is precisely what endows it with redemptive power, what transfigures it into a divine sign. From being the greatest pain into the most perfect passion of a love that is not done loving until it's poured its life out for us. That's why I have to wonder, what better use of our time during Holy Week have we than to contemplate this mystery? Even as we receive the gift, even as we ask for the grace to more effectively communicate this to a world out there that still hates him. We're not trying to reach them. We are them. And Christ has reached us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So if God the Father is not willing to withhold, he's not, he's, he's not unwilling, he, he, he won't withhold his only beloved son from us, but we are them. So we have got to contemplate this mystery and internalize it more and more so that we can not only communicate it more effectively, but love it more meaningfully and communicate it and express it more coherently so that people don't have to suppress the implications by saying, well, I guess it does kind of picture God as a, a really violent father who has a problem with this immeasurable wrath, but fortunately it's been vented, so we're now safe. There's nothing of the kind. The inner logic of Christ's suffering is the love of God, the Father, for the Son, in the Son, and through the Holy Spirit. And so when you look upon the cross on Good Friday, Look at it in the light of the Eucharist. He didn't lose his life, he gave it. He's not the victim of Roman violence, but divine love. And then receive that Eucharist on Holy Thursday, because Good Fridays are coming for every one of us, but so is Easter Sunday. This is the Paschal mystery. 
It is his death and his resurrection. But it even, even more, when you listen to the Mass this week, listen for what comes after the words of consecration. We call it the anamnesis, the memorial. Because what we memorialize, what we are representing, what we are witnessing is not only what happened in the upper room on Holy Thursday, but what happened on Good Friday. But not just what happened on Good Friday, but what happened on Easter Sunday. And what happens on the day of his ascension. Because as I mentioned a few minutes ago, Jesus' body, blood, soul, and divinity that we receive in the Holy Eucharist is the same body that was on the cross, but it isn't bleeding. It isn't buried in the tomb anymore. It's raised from the dead. It is ascended on high. It is the holy offering that our heavenly high priest sacrifices there and here, then and now, and for all time. And it's who we are as Catholic Christians. It's what we do in every Mass. And it's precisely what transforms our pain into passion, our suffering into sacrifice. So it leads St. Paul to say as he does in Romans 12, 1-2, Therefore, brethren, I beseech you by the mercies of God to present your what? Your bodies as a living sacrifice. Notice that bodies is plural, but sacrifice is singular. Why? Because we all have bodies, and so we all have crosses. But before he bestows a cross on us, he bestows his body, blood, soul, and divinity on us. So that through, through the sacrament of divine love, we can endure human suffering and transform that into a holy sacrifice and anticipate the revelation of the glory that awaits us when we are resurrected from the dead and enter into the glory of Easter. No wonder timing is everything for the body of Christ, for the family of God. No wonder Holy Week is where we pull out the stops. No wonder Holy Week is also where we need to stop and contemplate who we are as beloved sons and daughters because of what the Father sent the Son to do and how the Holy Spirit empowers us to do what we could never do on our own. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Almighty God, our Father in heaven, we thank you once again for the gift of Jesus. But we ask you in his holy and powerful name for a superabundant outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon us to strengthen our bodies, to overcome the appetites and the passions and the affections that are so disordered, to enable us to receive the truth of a love that is divine, to also receive the cross that is tailored according to our deepest needs and your greatest graces. Dear Father, in the name of Jesus, we also pray that you'd pour out the spirit of sonship that enabled Jesus and now us to cry, Abba, Father, to recognize that our sufferings are not inflicted in spite of your love, but because of it, because you wish to communicate that love to us and enable us to love like Christ. We thank you, O Lord, for the gift of your passion. We also thank you, dear Jesus, for the gift of the Holy Eucharist. Help us, O God, and hear us as we pray that family prayer that Jesus taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. 
Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Real briefly, I want to mention, just having made the sign of the cross, what Pope Benedict just said a couple of years ago before he stepped down. He said, and I quote, the sign of the cross is the height of our faith. In doing it with an attentive heart, we enter into the full mystery of our salvation. For the cross reminds us that there is no true love without suffering. There is no gift of life without pain. Many learn this truth. This is the school of faith and hope. It is also the school of love and our service to our brothers and sisters. Thank you very much.